0: Looking at the time, I think it's probably uh, time to get started. Uh, Walt, uh, would you be willing to open us up in prayer, please? Father, we uh, thank you
1: for this time of gathering where you can come and uh, learn uh, more about your word and, uh, through the confessions. Thank you for uh, Paul for teaching us today. And to go far from here and get ready to go to worship later on, maybe rejoice and uh, comforting that you know us. It it's in the name of Jesus
0: that we pray. Thank you. So we're going to be finishing the Westminster Confession today. There's a big asterisk on that. uh, Because of uh, Tim's travel, he's actually doing uh, four chapters before this. So we are doing the concluding chapters of the Westminster Confession. But there's going to be two more Sunday schools following this uh, on some earlier chapters. So we are going out of order a little bit. Um, Chapters 32 and 33 are what we're covering today. That's in the handout. I, I did want to really quickly apologize for the handout. Um, I don't know why uh, Google Documents printed it a lot smaller than it was intended to be. <laughs> it, it was printing a, a view of it for some reason. And since I'd already printed quite a few copies, I didn't want to reprint it uh, when, once I saw that, that little problem. So it's a little difficult to read, but everything is there. Except actually the citation, which is supposed to be there, uh, I'm using the modern English version of the Westminster Confession just for simplicity, and that's on the OPC website. If anyone's curious, I'd be happy to supply a link for that, which is there in the original, just not in the printout. So, uh, the 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 basic strategy that we're going to use today is we're going to kind of go through chapters 32 and 33 relatively quickly, and I'm going to kind of point out uh, some things, and then we're going to kind of step back a little bit and look. at some of the topics in a little bit more detail. We'll see how much time we have to to do that. So chapter 32 is the state of men after death and the resurrection of the dead. And the the first portion that we'll look at states, after death, the bodies of men uh, decay and return to dust, but their souls, which neither die nor sleep, having an immortal existence, return immediately to God who gave them. And The wording here is intentional on the the part of the divines to respond to a doctrine that that apparently, I I just found this out in studying, uh, was actually somewhat common back at the time. And it's made a resurgence in the 1800s and still around called soul sleep. And as heresies go, or at least maybe as uh, incorrect doctrine goes, it's not as harmful as many. But uh, but it's a position that at at death, you. um, don't have any experience until the resurrection at the end. Um, that There isn't what uh, theologians would call an intermediate state where a spirit is with God and will come back with Jesus at the, at the resurrection. Um, I, there, there's enough scripture that really contradicts that that it's a little bit difficult to understand why anyone would adopt that doctrine, but it, uh, groups have in, in the past. And that, that's uh, what the confession is responding to specifically here. That chapter continues. The souls of the righteous are made perfect in holiness and received into the highest heavens, where they behold the face of God in light and glory as they wait for the full redemption of their bodies. The souls of the wicked are cast into hell, where they remain in torments and utter darkness as they are kept uh, for the judgment of the great day. And one of the things that might seem a little bit counterintuitive to the way that Scripture presents this is that uh, you, both rewards and punishment at least begin before the final judgment. Those uh, you who are believers will be in uh, you know, what we would call heaven. Uh, they, they will be with God, uh, beginning to experience some of the rewards. Things will get better after the final judgment. But And, and those uh, who are unbelievers, who are disobedient, uh, the the punishment begins immediately after death. Yes.
2: So, will they be reunited with their bodies after the judgment?
0: Yes, and and I, we'll, we'll see that in the confession. I'm ninety nine percent sure, but um, you know, the the bodies of both the just and the unjust are raised physically. Um. <clears throat> but you know the what, what theologians would call the intermediate state. That's where your soul is after death. Um. You know that that's a spiritual existence. There isn't a, a body that's raised until the, the final resurrection, which is right before the final judgment. And I, you know, as a lawyer, that might kind of rub you the wrong way that, <laughs> you know, that uh, you, know, the that punishment begins before a judicial sentence is uh, specifically handed down. Um,
2: but I, so, so, souls are being tormented. Even though they don't have bodies.
0: Yes. Yeah, and, and one of the places that you might go is the account of the rich man and Lazarus for that, um, or probably the parable. Uh, there's a little controversy as to w- whether it's a parable, but you know, the, the rich man in that I- is in torment, and he wants to go tell his brothers to avoid this place, um, which you know, very much implies it's at the present, not in the future. So the, the, the key differences in the uh, intermediate state is that it, it's spiritual; it's not a physical existence. Um, and uh, you, um, <clears throat> you, it's interesting in the writings of Paul. Paul sees that that spiritual existence as significantly inferior, you know, to the new heavens and the new earth, which is going to be a physical existence. And we'll we'll come to that a little bit more. I'll go ahead and finish the chapter here. Scripture recognizes no other place uh, except these two for the souls that have been separated from their bodies. And what the Confession is really dealing with there are two Catholic doctrines. One of them I'd be willing to bet most of you would be able to name right away, and that's purgatory. Uh, The other is is a lot less well-known and a lot less offensive. Um, Purgatory, of course, is a, a concept that you... Uh, sins committed after baptism need to be atoned for somehow. And for whatever reason, Christ's death isn't sufficient to atone for that. And so those need to be atoned for in a place of torment called purgatory. Um, And and that uh, doctrine to to me and hopefully to most of us is a rather offensive one because it really does take away from what Christ accomplished on the cross. Um, The the second one is a little bit less offensive. Um, It's called, well, actually, does anyone know what it is? Very good, yeah. Uh, I, I didn't know until I started studying for this. <laughs> um, Patris Limbum. Um, and it there, there are slightly different versions of it, but the, the, the most common one is that uh, Old Testament believers didn't immediately go into heaven, but they went into some sort of a, a limbo, uh, which you can kind of hear in the Latin for Patris Limbum. Um, and they, they weren't admitted to heaven until Christ accomplished what he accomplished on the cross. Um,
3: Christ coming with the keys and, then, yeah, know, and bringing and, Abraham and,
0: into his bosom. Yeah, and you could, you could certainly see in some scriptures where you could kind of get that. But I, I think that that's, even the, the scriptures that you would take to, to develop that doctrine, you're stretching them to pull that out. And It was
1: actually a popular theme, Renaissance or Christian art history, where Christ is depicted as, you know, coming with keys and opening up this big cage door of mm-hmm. all the Old Testament fathers. That's why it's called Patris
0: Lumbum. Right? being released from Limbo. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, anyway, th- those are the two, Purgatory and Patris Limbum, that the Confession is really responding to here. And it, I think it's wording it very appropriately, you know one of the things that we'll see is the scripture is not very specific on exactly what happens after death. Um, we, we have some information, but you know, I think that there, there's not nearly enough in scripture that you could safely develop a doctrine like Patris certainly not a doctrine like purgatory, which you know, ha- has a lot more uh, scriptural problems. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and continue on into chap- uh, section two of the chapter. At the last day, those who are alive shall not die, but be changed. All the dead shall be raised up in their selfsame bodies and no other, although with different qualities, which shall be united again with their souls forever. And and so this chapter is really uh, specifically covering the bodily resurrection. And that's a a resurrection that has not been too controversial within Christianity as as doctrines go, thankfully. Um, you know, at least, uh, not in more recent times. I think in the er- early church, there there would be some more issues with that. <clears throat> um, I'm going to uh, read the next section and kind of go through these together. <clears throat> uh, by the power of Christ, the bodies of the unjust shall be raised in dishonor. The bodies of the just shall be raised in honor, or raised to honor by His Spirit and brought into conformity with Christ's own glorious body. And I, I mentioned that you know, the, the bodily resurrection ha- hasn't been that controversial in, in later church history. It was controversial in early church history. And what's going on is, in Greek thinking, the, the Greeks had a, a concept that the spiritual was good. And people had a spiritual component. And they also have a physical component. And the physical world is bad. And the, the idea is that you to, to kind of progress, you want to get rid of this kind of evil physical existence and move on to a spiritual existence. So you can kind of get rid of all the bad stuff that comes with the physical, and the, the spirit is good. And we, we know from Christ's teaching that that's exactly wrong. Uh, there's nothing wrong with cre- uh, creation and matter physically. It, it's our spirits that cause the problem, and our spirits that need renewal by, by Christ. Uh, and so this was a... you. But you know, this Greek thinking would, uh, was, was still present. It was it very much permeated the age. And so uh, you know, as people became Christians, they would kind of run into this. And you, Christian teaching is that there, w- there will be a bodily resurrection. And that just flies in the face of Greek thinking. Yes?
1: I was going to ask you, did Gnosticism come before that, or did it come out of that?
0: So Gnosticism is certainly tied to that. There's there's uh, a couple different aspects of Gnosticism, as I understand it. There's people that know, would know this better that might need to correct me. Um, Gnosticism kind of refers to secret knowledge. And so you'd, you'd get these cults, basically, that you, if you get far enough into it, they'll give you secret knowledge, kind of like with uh, you know, uh, Scientology, where you know, the farther you get, the more that they'll, they'll tell you about what's going on. Um, I think
1: generally speaking, the Greek thought comes from Plato, and-
0: called Platonism
1: or Neoplatonism. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. The soul or the spirit <coughs> Yeah, so... The real thing in the
1: yeah. physical world.
0: Is yeah. Kind of, uh, so I, I think what you're thinking is that Gnostics very much embraced your Greek thinking, including this idea, but there was other stuff that kind of came with Gnosticism. But the, kind of the Greek philosophical thinking, it really kind of permeated the ancient world. And... You are kind of flying in the face of just what what people kind of believed at a root level, at kind of at an axiomatic level, to uh, say that you know instead of you know, moving on to a better fi- spiritual existence, that instead you know, God was going to raise the body and uh, you know kind of move towards a final state, as, as theologians call it, as a physical existence. And I, I mentioned that this particular one is not one that there's going to be significant conflict with even Roman Catholic theology in this particular point. Um, however, I, I wouldn't say that this not doctrine is neglected today. You know, I, I grew up and I don't think I had a firm handle on a, a bodily resurrection. And if you look at the New Testament, the New Testament will argue very clearly and very forcefully for a physical resure- resurrection at the end. And So I, I would say that although you, it, it's unusual to find specific um, instances where someone will you know, disagree with this, I don't think it's taught at the, at the level that it should be in a lot of churches.
3: I can't tell you the number of times that you know I've heard, oh, well, now they're in heaven forever. <laughs> no. <laughs> it's yeah. temperate. It's intermediate. That's yeah. not what we're looking for. We're looking for the restoration of both the body and soul. We're looking mm-hmm. for the restoration of the physical and the spiritual. Yep. Um, and those things God created as both being good in Genesis. Mm-hmm. And so he's not going to do away with one or burn away one and then create something <coughs> new. He's going to redeem what we have. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah.
1: this is that what's, I mean, Christian traditions typically vary as opposed to created because of the belief of the resurrection of body. Yes. To, uh, we just become one of the, you know, Part
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you, the the idea of uh, of burial, which you know certainly existed before Christianity, but Christians have always could uh, uh, kind have of consistently embraced that because of the, the idea that that body will be raised. And it's not so much that you know someone that that has been cremated can't be raised. God could take a speck and and and, and raise a body. <laughs> um, but at the same time, I think Christians expect that body to be raised, and so they, they, they respect it and see it as something that will, will be raised at the end.
2: Yeah, and I think I want to just speak a little to your, your recognition of the lack of this being taught. You know, I know in my metaphysics class in college, um, just our idea of our identity, as Christians, like the problem of identity, there's all those various types, you know, that how is our body and soul in communion, you know, and I think you watch in Star Trek, you see the mm-hmm. problem of identity, you know, mm-hmm. which Riker's which the guy that <laughs> got transported to the... Yeah planet and they reunite later or is my mind my body, you know, what constitutes me, can I be put into my sister's brain, is that you know, it, and yeah. this is an idea that is really underdeveloped and I know for me I really hmm. struggle to ask this question, how is my soul in the Christian world view um, and, and, and it's, it's a subject that it's, I think a holistic view, where mm-hmm. we are in communion with, we are created by God, and, and it's, yeah. a, it's a subject that really needs to be developed. Because I remember seeing this in my metaphysics class it was just glossed over. You know, we're not going to deal with souls. You know, they're a bunch of coots. But let's talk about um, brain transplants and, and bodies. And brains and bats, and that's entertained, but we're not talking about how our mind and body and soul or, you know, Mm -hmm. is in relationship with what the scriptures teach, you know, and the resurrection. Because that's a big component, because there are Roman Catholic apologists that would have a resurrection view, but we wouldn't be able to be in agreement with a lot of the things that some of them are saying. worth what to
0: Okay. <clears throat> so I'm going to go ahead and go on, on to 33. I, I know that we're going through this relatively quickly, but um, again, my, my plan is to kind of step back and look at a few of the issues from this after we, we finish with the confession itself. Uh, chapter 33, the final chapter in the confession is the last judgment. Uh, and then section one, God has appointed a day in which he will judge the world righteously by Jesus Christ to whom all power and judgment has been given by the Father. In that day, not only shall the apostate angels be judged, but also shall all people who have ever lived on earth appear before the judgment seat of Christ in order to give an account of their thoughts, words, and deeds, and to receive judgment according to what they have done in the body, whether good or evil. Uh, A couple of really quick comments. We're going to come back to the second one uh, heavily later if we have time, and I really hope we do. Uh, one of them is that it's very difficult to read Scripture and not see a single judgment at the end. Uh, reformed eschatologies, in other words, reformed kind of views of how things <coughs> will unfold, uh, have uh, kind of a single judgment. Dispensationalism would certainly be the big one that has several different judgments that are kind of broken up, and you, know, you end up kind of running into you know, difficult uh, time kind of making sense of Scripture uh, when you see that. Yes, <laughs> um, but uh, I think scripture is, uh, reads a lot more simply and a lot more clearly if you have in view simply one judgment at the end. Uh, this will be a comprehensive judgment. Angels you know, and all human beings, whether believers or unbelievers, will uh, stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Um, <clears throat> and I'm going to reread a, a part of the confession here. Um, all will uh, will stand before the judgment seat of Christ in order to give an account of their thoughts, words, and deeds and receive judgment about what they have done in the body, whether good or evil. And that that was something that kind of years ago when I I looked at this was surprising to me, how consistently the scripture refers to the final judgment as a judgment that's based on works. And that's an issue I'd like to come back to uh, at at the end, Uh, but but not here. I'd like to make sure I get through everything uh, in the confession first. Uh, The second section, God's purpose in appointing this day is to manifest the glory of his mercy in the eternal salvation of the elect and the glory of his justice in the damnation of the reprobate who are wicked and disobedient. On that day, the righteous shall go into everlasting life and receive the fullness of joy and refreshing which shall come from the presence of the Lord. But the wicked who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ shall be cast into eternal torments and be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Uh, Again, my my purpose here is to try to go through this quickly so we can kind of step back and look at some questions. So I'll make a couple comments. The main purpose of the judgment is to glorify God, both by glorifying God in his mercy to the elect and glorifying God through his justice to the reprobate. Uh, That's really clearly stated in the confession, very clearly seen in scripture as well. there's a phrase that uh, I, I will come back to from the presence of the Lord, and I'd like to, to look at that in more detail, but I'm going to look at, at that later. Uh, it's a quotation from Scripture, um, but I, I think that it, uh, it it might have been better to, to expound on it a little bit in the Confession, and, and I'll make sure that we take the time to unpack it. Uh, the final point, as Christ would... Have us to be absolutely convinced that there is a day of judgment, both to deter all men from sin and to give greater consolation to the godly in their adversity. So will he have that day to be unknown to men, that they may shake off all carnal security, may be watchful, because they do not know at what hour the Lord will come, and may always be prepared to say to him, "Come, Jesus!" Uh, sorry, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen first of all, I think is a, a fantastic point to end the, the confession on, kind of the expectation that Christ will come back and set all things right. Um, and I, I, don't, I don't think I want to get into the details uh, of that particular one. I think it's pretty uh, self-explanatory. But I, I kind of would like to move on to some of these issues that I've pulled out. On the back of your sheet, I've got kind of a list of the questions that I'd like to address. I don't know if I'm going to have time to get to all of those uh, but I'm going to do my best to try to get through uh, as many as as I can at least and that's just kind of a spot to, for you to put in notes and to kind of be thinking about what we're going to be coming to One thing that I, I will mention you considering that we're we're covering you know, an eternity really there's a, a great deal that's being covered. We've got two relatively short chapters the confession is is rather brief on but I, I think the scriptures are often a, a lot more brief on on uh, these things as well they they don't tell us everything that we would like to know. And if you think about you know, the popularity of you know, so-called so uh, near-death experience books, where someone you know, claims or be- maybe believes that they uh, saw a glimpse of heaven or, or, more rarely, hell, those actually sell a lot better than really good sound theological books. And what, what you know, it's, it's certainly questionable whether uh, th- those experiences are real or not, but what kind of struck me is that there's a few really good instances in scripture where someone died for a, a, a reasonably long period of time. Lazarus would have been the longest at four days, and came back. And in every instance, the scripture simply doesn't deal with it, what they experience at all. If God wanted us to know that, he would have put it in. And he intentionally uh, did not inspire the authors of scripture to um, to deal with that person's experience, what, whatever it was. Uh, and maybe since God knew that that person was going to be raised shortly, maybe they didn't enter, enter the immediate state. Who knows? That's kind of a matter of speculation there. But we, I, I think the, the, the popularity of that is really kind of telling. We'd like to know a lot of details, but we don't focus on the most important detail. And the confession, I think, uh, gets that right. The most comfort, important detail about heaven and about the final state is that Jesus is going to be there. And we're going to be with him. The rest are unimportant details, um, and I, I think the confession does a really good job of pointing to what's important and not really dwelling on things that are a, a very distant second.
3: I think it's really important to point out that most of those near-death experience <laughs> books are in some way comforting to the sins and platitudes of uh, you know earthly man's religion anyway so like, yeah. oh, you're, you're doing okay is, is pretty much the message of Christ in all of those books
2: and yeah
0: I haven't read any so I didn't want to say that but <laughs> I, I, I suspect you're right um, it, um, they, they, they probably vary a little bit too in, in terms of the quality of the theology um, but re- regardless I, I think at, at best they would be spiritual junk food, even if it was from a legitimate experience. Um, I think you would be a lot better You're reading a book that, tell, that really goes into what Scripture wants us to know about heaven and the final state than uh, a, a book that's you're based on something other than Scripture. So there, there's one thing in, in the confession I, I wanted to spend a little bit of time on. Um, I, I'm going to reread a section. But the wicked who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ will be cast into eternal torments and be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. So from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power is a quotation from uh, 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 10. Uh, Not the entire thing, but a a, a section in that. Um, And I I think in the interest of time, I'm not going to actually read that, but I I do want to kind of comment... On the wording, one way that would be natural to read that would be that the wicked will not be uh, in the presence of God, Um, and I I think that there is a sense in which that is correct. But I think that there's also uh, a a real danger uh, to to looking at it uh, that way. the The issue is: is God present in some sense in hell? And I'd, I'd like to kind of examine that and unpack that. I, I think the divines would affirm that, that he is. He's omniscient. <laughs> um, but you know, there, there's a, an aspect of his presence that won't be present in hell. He will not be a loving father in, in hell. And I think that's what that scripture is getting at. And if you look at the, the surroundings in 2 Thessalonians, I think that's more clear. Um, maybe stepping back just half a step, very often in... You know, 20th, 21st century s- sermons, you'll hear hell described as separation from God. And you know, there is a, a sense, I think, in which uh, you could say that in that you will not enjoy God's uh, fellowship. Uh, and we're created for fellowship with God. And so to miss out on that is you know, to miss out on the more, most important thing that we are created for. Uh, it, Unfortunately, especially to fallen human beings, they're a lot more interested in you're the near death version of, of heaven. golden streets and great food and
2: yes. I was just gonna say that since we know that God is you know, you know everywhere present. Mm-hmm. Ubiquitous, so in hell, wouldn't it be safer to
3: say that, that those that are in hell are actually separated from the
2: benevolence of God, you know, and they're suffering the wrath of God, you know?
0: Yeah. <clears throat> yes. I I I absolutely agree with that. We're we're gonna to get to that here. Um so I, anyway, I think that euphemism that we, we very frequently use for hell is separation from God is problematic for a couple reasons. First of all, it, it softens what hell is, and it's intended uh, to do that. You know, if if the, the error in 19th century preaching was to uh, emphasize hell more than it should have been, uh, I don't know if any of you have read very many 19th or, or earlier Uh, sermons, Uh, but if you read more than four or five Spurgeon sermons, for example, which are excellent, you will eventually come to a 10 or 15-minute section on the horrors of hell. Um, That was a very frequent topic for him, and I think he probably overemphasized that a little bit, and I think at least to as much of an extent, probably worse, we underemphasize hell in today's preaching.
1: You know what? I think I think one of the things we really need to think of when we like this is what did God uh, Christ pay for on the cross? If you minimize his punishment on the cross, then, you, I mean, that's how you put it into perspective. Mm-hmm. Tim Keller has great stuff on that, but I, I, I would agree with him. Although there's a lot of metaphor, and you have to understand this stuff, sometimes you have to use metaphor, maybe even hyperbole, because we don't know, you know, it's, but I, I, I think that any any minimization of the punishment that Christ
3: went through on the cross is one of the things that we want to avoid.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: We all yeah.
3: want to consider and and ponder and meditate on the perfect love of God, but who wants to really think about his perfect wrath?
0: Yes, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, I, I I think that you know the the uh, you know, kind of using that euphemism separation of God for hell. First of all, it uh, it minimizes what hell is, and it, probably to an extent that it, it shouldn't. It's probably a euphemism that should fall out of of, of use. Somewhat paradoxically, though, it, it also prompts people to feel, fear hell, which. They should, but they really should be fearing God. Uh, let me uh, read a scripture. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Um, the, a, a scriptural fear should primarily be a, a fear of, of God uh, and a, a fear of God's wrath, as, as we've been mentioning. And defining hell as separation from God is exactly counter to that and, uh, and, and dangerous. You know, the omniscience of God really tells us that there can't be a place that God is not. And so there is a sense in which God will be present in hell, and let's take a look at at what that sense is. Um, I've got a quote from Michael Horton that I think just did a a better job than than I could. Um, Hell is not ultimately about fire, but about God. Whatever the exact nature of physical punishments, the real terror awaiting the unrepentant is God himself in his inescapable presence forever, with his face turned against them. They will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. They will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And that's Revelation 4.10 that that Horton is quoting there at the end. And so I, I hope that I've kind of shown you that uh, the idea that God is not present in hell is not a scriptural one. I think God is present there, and God is justly dealing with the sins of of the unbelievers. Um, One issue that uh, Horton's quote actually brings up is, I think Horton is kind of tipping his cards there, that he sees the biblical descriptions of hell as primarily metaphorical. Um, And there's a lot of uh, Reformed theologians that would see that. Others would, would see that as literal. In my opinion, this is one where I think both positions would be, would be acceptable. Personally, I would lean towards the idea that the descriptions in Scripture are primarily metaphorical. The reason for that is that they don't mesh well together. You have hell described as outer darkness. You have it described as a lake of fire. You, know, you have it described as you know, weeping and gnashing of teeth where the worm does not die. The, the fact that the, the descriptions don't mesh particularly well, tells me that whatever reality hell is, is at least as bad, more likely worse than those descriptions, but something that would be very difficult for us to contemplate. And so the Bible uses images. Um, Very good Christians would disagree with me on that and see these as primarily literal uh, descriptions. And I think as long as the metaphorical view recognizes that hell is every bit as bad as it's described. Uh, um, I think both positions really are acceptable, and I don't see any problems actually with holding the the op, you know, either uh, position as long as they're um, they're held well. And ironically, I think the position that I, I would lean towards um, is a little bit more dangerous in that it is very often used to soften the reality of hell. But I think properly understood, it should not do that. I
1: think like when you think about. That. Say separation from God too,
2: like mm-hmm. you could think. I think a lot of people think of hell as
0: like Earth, right? Like God's not here, and it's that's almost mm-hmm. like a selling point. Right? <laughs> but it is. <laughs> um, well, to to, to to someone that's not regenerate, they don't want to have anything to do with the the God of the Bible. Oh
3: yeah. Um, Machiavelli said, uh, "I'd much rather go to hell than heaven to be in the presence of uh, kings and." Uh, and comedians rather than uh, priests and paupers.
0: Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Um, the, I think the better an unregenerate person understands you know, the, the God of the Bible, the less that that person would want to have to do with him. Um, and I, I suspect, I'm probably going a little bit beyond Scripture and certainly beyond the confession here, but I think if you could give an unregenerate person a choice between hell and being in the presence of God forever... Uh, a God that they hate deepen the the soul, the, the core of their soul. They would be better served in hell, and would would choose that. Um, I, you know, C.S. Lewis will go a little bit farther with that, and probably probably farther than he should. Um, and I, I think that that can be a little bit dangerous in that you know, uh, I I don't think the unregenerate choose hell. They're thrown <laughs> in, in, into hell, but. I think the only worse fate for them would be to be in the presence of the Lord. Yes?
1: Jonathan Edwards, has a three volume set. Um, his description of how and what what is going on in there is unbelievably um, mm-hmm. fearful. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah. Okay. I think Tim Keller said that no one in hell will be saying, "I want this." Mm-hmm. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> this is where I want. I mean, nobody will say, "I want."
0: Yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah. So, so let me say this: uh, if the description of heaven and hell is not really clear, mm-hmm. what is the basis that a person would decide? Not to go to hell or to heaven, because it's, because as you're talking, it's yeah. all speculation. So if you mm-hmm. cannot define it, and we're all we're sitting in the room deciding, we don't want to go to hell. We would prefer to go to heaven, but if it's not clear, yeah. what is the basis that you're making that decision?
0: People who go to heaven are people who deeply love Jesus Christ, <laughs> um, and and recognize Him as their only hope of salvation. Uh, to a believer, their their heart has been turned from, from hating Christ to loving Christ, and I honestly think that you could, that the better you know who Jesus Christ is, the secondary things of what heaven is like would be inconsequential. Jesus is there, I want to be there. <laughs> um, and you know, hell uh, isn't exactly a choice. You know, Hell is a consequence of sin, um, but it, it is for a person who has chosen to reject Jesus Christ and not have anything to do with, with the, the, the God that's revealed in Scripture. Um, does that kind of answer your question?
1: No,
2: because what I'm kay. saying to you is, is that, if, uh, you, know, um, they're, they're, you know, like we
1: said, we shot down the issue about people. We don't really know if people died and came back in that situation mm-hmm. there. But what I'm saying to you, we're actually presenting an argument that heaven is better than hell but actually we have no proof of that because scripture actually doesn't reveal that. So why oh, I,
0: now I wouldn't I wouldn't say I wouldn't go that far. I, um I, the, w- choice, yeah. the choice is I'll do this or do that. It's a matter of where
1: your heart is. Your heart draws you, you know, that's yeah you know, when, you, when you make an altar call, you don't say, Well you can have this or you
2: can have that. It's it's Jonathan Edwards, you know, does it a great length. The issue is, where is your heart, and your heart is what God has given you, has He given you a heart for Him, or has He left you selfish and, and evil, and it's just a natural consequence. I, I think to, 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 to say that, that that's the basis of some of your decisions.
0: Yeah. Right, and I, I also didn't want to imply at all that we don't know something about heaven and something about hell. I think we, we know exactly
1: what God wanted us to know, and, yes. and there are many things in Scripture that God leaves, right. he doesn't get down to, you yeah. know, into the weeds and specificity, because that's not what he, we know right. exactly, we have, to, we have to believe that he has perfectly rebuilt himself, yeah. and what he wants us to know and that what we know about heaven and hell are exactly what he wants us to know. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. the confession captures
0: yeah. and it. And I think we, we can very safely say that the new heavens and the new earth will be a wonderful place. <laughs> we don't know exactly what it's going to be like. Um, I think the, the important thing that we know about it is that Christ will be there. And we know that hell is a horrible place uh, that no one would want to be in. Um, and so... I don't think we necessarily need to know the the details. Um, An an example of that is one of the descriptions of of heaven, or the new heavens and the new earth in Revelation is that there will be no more sea. And I don't think that John is actually telling us that there's not going to be any oceans in the new heavens and the new earth. I think instead, he's referring to the idea of of sea as a place of chaos. And earlier in Revelation, that's where the beasts emerged. Um, And so chaos is removed. so he's symbolically telling us something a lot better than whether or not there will be oceans there. Um, that, and that's kind of what I meant in saying we don't have a clear idea of what uh, you, uh, the details will be like aside from Christ being there. So we've got a few questions. I'll try to go in order. I, it's
1: not a snare okay.
0: okay. uh, of heaven or
1: hell, but it's the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is when Christ came, he became man. Mm-hmm. And you know how John the Baptist says, um, "The kingdom of God is coming." Well, the kingdom of God is here, and we are His subjects. We are Christ's subjects once we are believers. Mm-hmm. And when Christ says He's coming again, He's coming again to new, to yeah. a new heavens and a new earth. So it's yeah. not a matter of heaven is up here and hell is down here, and somebody goes here and somebody goes there. It's that Christ is come. He reigns, he's king of uh, kings and lord of lords, but he's left, left us here to be a light to the dark mm-hmm. world and to show people what his kingdom is like. And his promise is, like, just like it says, come quickly Lord Jesus, come and take over your kingdom. That's
0: yeah. Okay.
1: What she said. <laughs> <laughs> but also that he's restoring what he created and mm-hmm. that it's physical. So the, yeah. the the picture of redemption is complete, and yeah. just your coverage of that it is physical, it's renewing, and it's restoring God's yeah. original creation.
0: Yeah, and it, it, it's more than restoring, though. Um, you know, if, if you look back to the, the Garden of Eden, um, you, God would have fellowship periodically. He'd walk with, with them but he wasn't uh, present with them in the same way that he's going to be present in the new heavens and the new earth, where his presence will be constant. Um, <clears throat> and it's it, also
1: a city instead of a garden.
0: Yeah, and I, I think you, the... Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah the, the knowledge of, of God, will, I think, will be vastly greater. We'll, we'll know God in a much better way than Adam did. So it, it's not a return to Eden. It's something much, much better. I yeah.
1: a um, uh, question. Yeah. To follow up to and um, Sure. So I'm just pondering. So if somebody dies like unborn mm-hmm. or you know, go back to our physical bodies. And if you're a child or you're gonna be a child, if you're an old woman, you're gonna be an old woman. If you're a fetus when you die, yeah. mean, you're a fetus. Do you know what I mean? I have no idea. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, um I, I don't I don't think there's really any indication in, in scripture that the one thing that we have to go on is Christ received his resurrection body, and he was recognizable. Um,
3: but not immediately.
0: <laughs> but, who, who, but who knows whether uh, that was, was obscured or whether he intentionally life, yeah, did that. Intentionally I, I think the disciples immediately recognized him when he showed up with the, the, the 11.
2: True.
0: Um, so he could have been immediately recognizable. It, it, it's hard to say. Um, I, I think uh, that, that's the only thing we really have to go on with that question, um, and it's it's not enough to answer, uh, and I think since the Bible doesn't deal with it, I'm not going to try to either. <laughs> um, I, I'm really tempted to, to skip ahead and at least kind of look at the the reasons for the final judgment being um, ba- based on works. I'm not going to do that, but maybe we'll we'll come back to it another another day. Um, if anyone's curious about that, I would certainly be happy to email you, uh, you know, some notes. So. Uh, just send me an email, I'd be happy to help out. Dear Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you for the the fact that heaven is a possibility for us. We could not possibly do anything to merit being in your presence for eternity. But you chose to step into history, bear the penalty for the sins that we've uh, committed that you had nothing uh, to do with, but you bore that for us so that heaven is a possibility for us. And that we could escape the horrors of hell. I just pray, Lord, that what you have done for us would really sink in this week, that we would love you and worship you uh, more passionately and more fervently as a result of what you've accomplished for us on the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.